0: Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought provoking legal topics. And now for the interview.
1: The Second Amendment has been experiencing an era of expansion over the last two decades since a 2008 decision called Heller. Today we'll be discussing the latest expansion, which is a big one, a Supreme Court case called Bruin decided in June, and what it means for gun rights and gun laws across the country. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law, I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by a Second Amendment scholar, a law professor at Duke Law School, my alma mater, and the co-director of the Duke Firearms Law Center, Professor Joseph Blocher. Welcome to Talks on Law.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Joel. Greetings from the alma mater.
1: Wonderful to see you today, and uh, I'm I'm excited to talk all about guns and the law.
0: As am I always.
1: <laughs> I'm curious about that. Have you have you always had uh, have you long had an interest in guns? Are you uh, uh, an enthusiast?
0: Well, I grew up with guns. Uh, We had a gun in my house growing up. We would use it for recreational shooting, that kind of thing. Um, I'll admit I didn't grow up with very strong feelings on the issue about gun rights or regulation. I think like a lot of people, it was just a, you know, grew up in certain areas of the country. I grew up here in North Carolina. It's just a common thing uh, to have around. How I really got into the issue as sort of a lawyer and eventually a scholar was that I got sucked into that case you mentioned, Heller. Uh, In 2008, I was working at a law firm in D.C actually for another Duke law professor, Walter Dellinger, who ended up arguing the case of Heller on behalf of the district and he brought me on.
1: Famous law professor.
0: Very famous law professor, um, and former, uh, solicitor general, one of the, one of the legends. He was my, he was my hero. Uh, and I ended up working for him on this case, uh, district of Columbia versus Heller in 2008. And after that, two years later, I ended up in the academy and second amendment issues was sort of like this big open field, all these huge, interesting questions left open that, you know, you don't find in many other areas of constitutional law. Like, there's a there's a thousand theories of the First Amendment, um, but there weren't more than 10 scholars writing serious stuff on the Second. And so, it felt like an open and interesting and challenging field to say nothing of just how important on a day-to-day basis the issues are. So, So, that's how I got into it. And, you know, here I am all these years later, still trying to figure it all out.
1: Well, that's something many of our viewers may not be thinking of, which is, yeah, today, so the Second Amendment is a hot button issue. It's taking up a lot of time in the courts. It's something that scholars are are, are excited about or writing about uh, the, the law is changing but for decades or centuries, there really wasn't that much happening with the Second Amendment.
0: Certainly not in the courts. I mean there are there are right to bear arms cases in the courts, but they're mostly were being litigated under state provisions like state constitutional guarantees to the right to keep and bear arms. The Supreme Court had a few mentions in the late 1800s and in the 1930s, especially in a case called United States versus Miller, but it was kind of a sleepy area of of constitutional doctrine. I mean, I don't know what your experience was at Duke, but when I went through law school, we didn't talk about it in constitutional law except to say there's not really anything to learn here yet. So, when Heller came around uh, in 2008, it was really the culmination of a few decades of increasing debate in especially scholarship, but uh, also in the public, public arena um, about really what this amendment is for. And I would say briefly, I guess there were sort of two competing visions there. One says that the Second Amendment was limited to people and arms and activities that have some connection to the organized militia. Those people, people who argue that tend to focus on the first clause, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. But the competing vision, and this is the one the Supreme Court ended up adopting in Heller, is that the right extends to individuals to use guns for certain private purposes, most importantly, self-defense in the home. Now, by the time Heller was decided in 2008, that was the prevailing view of most Americans. Like, three-quarters of Americans said they agreed with the decision in Heller. Um, It it happened to drop, that opinion dropped, during the middle of the um, uh, Obama v. McCain campaign, and both of them came out uh, by the end of the day and said, yes, I agree, the Second Amendment protects an individual right. So that was sort of generation one of the Second Amendment debate, and then Heller, and a five-to-four decision resolved in favor of that individual private rights view. And the you know, next 14 years have been uh, seeing courts try to figure out, well, what are the, as we would say in law, the meets and bounds of this, of this right? Like, what kinds of regulations are permissible with it? And the, the opinion uh, in Bruin, which you mentioned, was, was another step, I think, in, in, in that era of Second Amendment debate.
1: Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, I, I think I see a specific book on your shelf behind you about the Second Amendment. And I think the byline on that book says the future after Heller or the future of Heller. Are we here at the future today?
0: Yeah, I, I think I need to cover up the title or put out a second edition, uh, The Future Came Quick. Um, well, it came quick in some ways and not in others. The, um, after Heller was resolved in 2008, the court specifically left open a whole bunch of hard questions, like what kinds of regulations are permissible, um, and they basically punted it to the lower courts to figure out, like what about prohibitions on particular groups or particular kinds of arms or particular places. Heller gave some guidance on that. It said that nothing, in our opinion, should cast doubt on such longstanding prohibitions as those that apply to felons or the mentally ill or dangerous and unusual weapons or sensitive places and so on, but basically left it to the lower courts. And uh, with one exception, a big case in 2010 called uh, McDonald's, the Supreme Court basically stayed out of the Second Amendment for another Fourteen years. Um, McDonald was important because it made the Second Amendment applicable to state and local governments, but it didn't really change the analysis of, you know, what kinds of regulations are constitutional. So there was a lot of law happening, like Heller was happening, but it was happening in the lower courts, not at the Supreme Court. And um, gosh, now that Bruins come down, I guess that uh, my co-author, Daryl Miller, and I are going to have to put out a new edition or change the title uh, or something, because yes, the future, future of Heller is, is here.
1: Well, we'll stay tuned for that new edition, and, and maybe we'll include it in the, in the show notes. But you know, today, I wanted to have you here to talk about Bruin. We're going to talk about the law. We're going to talk about the test and what it means for America. But let's start with the facts. Who is, who is suing whom in this case, and, and what gun rights or gun laws are at play? So
0: fundamentally, I think at a broad level, Bruin is a case about public carry. So Heller, uh, the challenge there, uh, Dick Heller, who was the named plaintiff, wanted to have a handgun in his home for self-defense. So one way to think about it is it was a case about keep, keeping arms. If you think about the text of the Second Amendment, it says the right to keep and bear arms. Heller gave a right to have a handgun in the home for self-defense, subject to some restrictions. Uh, but it didn't say anything clearly about how the right extends outside the home. And, of course, a lot of people like to carry guns outside the home for purposes including self-defense. Now, all states permit that in one way or another. There's no state that totally prohibits public carry. But there's two ways you could carry a gun in public. You could either do it openly, that means visibly, or concealed. And there's long and interesting history about open versus concealed carry regulations. But most states today prefer, if people are going to carry guns publicly, that they do it concealed. We can talk about, you know, the policy reasons why that might be. Um, Then there's a division among the states about, well, how do we regulate who is going to carry their guns in public? And this is where sort of Bruin comes into focus most states still require some form of permit or license if you're going to carry a concealed handgun in public. And those states are typically divided into two categories. The first are what are called the May issue states, and this is where New York was. And in the May issue states, you typically have to show something like proper cause, which was New York's requirement, or good cause, which some other states have, uh, in order to get your permit to carry a concealed handgun in public. And what that usually means is you've got some really heightened need for self-defense, Like you've been the victim of a crime or threats, or you've got a stalker or something kind of above and beyond the the average law-abiding citizen. Those are the May issue states.
1: So it can't be, hey, look, I'm just a very nervous person and I feel safer with my gun, I'd like to carry it around.
0: Exactly right. And so this is a heightened above and beyond just a general need or desire for self-defense. And it's it's worth, you know, emphasizing this gives the licensing official some discretion, right? They can decide, is your cause good enough? Is your your cause proper enough? Um, And that's one thing that the justices were really concerned about at the oral argument. We can talk about a little bit more in the opinion. So those are the May issue states. There's Today, only, depending on how you count it, six to eight of them, but they're big states. Uh, or they were big states. We'll see if how many of those laws survive. But that includes places like California, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, Maryland, Delaware, Washington, D.C. It covers about a quarter of the American population, right? If you go back even just 30, 35 years, most states had may issue regimes. But we've seen a sort of dwindling of the states. Yeah, this was
1: it. something that I was surprised about in... You know, in reviewing some of your writing, you know, even back in the 80s, the majority of states were May issue. In other words, you needed to show this just cause or good cause to get a permit to carry.
0: That's exactly right. I mean, in 1987, the number was 26 states that were a May issue, plus another 16 that outright prohibited uh, the concealed carrying of handguns. So we've seen a lot of deregulation at the state level. And that's just political choice. The Second Amendment, those aren't laws that have been struck down for the most part. Washington, D.C. lost a case. But for the most part, the laws have been upheld till this case. Uh, It's just been a matter of political choice and deregulation. And I should say, and this is the sort of we're getting to the second and third categories. May issue is the one that's that was before the court here. There's a second category uh, known as shall issue, and here the there's still criteria. You still have to get a permit, but the criteria are more objective. So it could be things maybe like training. You got to have you know 15 hours of you know experience on the range or whatever. Um, but it's it, at least nominally more objective criteria. If you check the boxes, then they shall issue a permit. Hence, shall issue jurisdictions. And then the third category are the permitless jurisdictions. Um, If we go back again to 1987, there's only one of those. It was Vermont. Today, there's more than 20. uh, And that's just what it sounds like. You don't need a permit to carry.
1: Yeah, what's an example of a, a permitless state today? And what does that mean for people
0: well the no again the numbers growing uh, Vermont was sort of the pioneer here so I guess I'll give them credit but it means just what it sounds like you if you are a, you know you still have to be a legal gun owner I mean you can't be a convicted felon you can't be adjudicated mentally ill like those are still requirements but if you are legally allowed to possess a gun then you can carry it in public with no permit no training no back no additional background check or anything anything like that
1: would I say that's a, a negative restriction you know everyone by default is permitted to carry a gun except for certain carve-outs?
0: That's one way to look at it, yeah, and here, you know, the carve-outs, um, they could be federal or state, um, you know, the federal, federal law enumerates some people who are not allowed to have guns including those convicted of felonies those who've conv- been convicted of domestic violence crimes fugitives from justice um, people who've adju- been adjudicated mentally ill like they're technically under federal law prohibited from having guns some states might add additional carve outs to that um, but that better that baseline federal prohibitions those are the, those are the most important so under you know and the states can't do away with those federal prohibitions because federal law is supreme so uh, so you're always going to be subject to those. But if you're not in any of those carve-outs, if you satisfy whatever your state's requirements are, and you can lawfully possess a handgun, you can carry it concealed in the 20-plus states that are permitless carry. So in Bruin, the focus is on that first category, which is usually considered the most stringent and the most strict, the may-issue regimes. And the court's decision in Bruin, which we could unpack, basically says that they are constitutionally impermissible, or at least questionable, under the Second Amendment.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, is it? are they saying that May issue states have it wrong? Or are they saying that the May issue in New York was too burdensome?
0: It's a great question, Joel. I have to say it's a little obscure to me. I mean, they, the court is clear. Well, I'll say the clear part. It is clear that the majority here, and it's a six-justice majority, does not like may-issue regimes. Um, there are at least two reasons why they seem skeptical of them. One is that they give too much discretion to licensing officials, um, and that's, that could be a problem, um, you know, because it introduces the possibility of bias, only insiders get their permits, you know, only elites, well-connected, etc., the other is that it, the standard is just too hard to satisfy, so that in practice, this is a fe- effectively a prohibition on public carry for, for the majority of law-abiding citizens, and that's kind of a different problem, right? You could have a system that's discretionary but easy to satisfy, or a system that's objective and really hard to satisfy, and like either one of those could be, could be a problem. But the court does say specifically, shall issue restrictions are fine. Like the 43 states that have either shall issue or permitless regime, those are still fine. Permitless, obviously, okay. But even the shall issue is fine. There's, that's, that's okay. We just want it to be more objective. And, th- and this, I should say, I think we're going to see a lot of litigation on that point because some of those shall issue states actually do have some discretion kind of baked into them. Like you could get denied a gun, even in a shall-issue state, if you're found to lack good moral character, or if you're, you know, if there's signs that you're dangerous. Um, so there's, it's it, the line between these categories is not totally bright. Uh, but that's the court blessed those other states, and so I think a lot of the may-issue states are now going to try to fit themselves under that umbrella and say, look, now we're shall-issue. You said that's okay, so we should be okay.
1: Well, I guess before we we get. Uh, we get to the impact. Maybe let's talk about the test for Second Amendment laws. And let's take a step back and look at what the test was after Heller. Heller decided there's a individual right, but kind of left it up to the states. Am I right that that was the, the legacy of, of Heller?
0: That's right. I mean, Heller Heller resolved one thing and then left one big thing open. So Heller says that the right is, extends to individuals and it includes private purposes like self-defense. So we know that. That's the most famous holding of Heller. But the second part of it, which is also crucial, is the court says, look, various forms of gun regulation are still constitutional even after this holding, like, and the court in, the court lists off you know, prohibitions on felons, mentally ill, dangerous and unusual weapons, sensitive places. What the court doesn't do is say why those things are okay. It doesn't say why those are okay, but a prohibition on handguns in the home, which is what DC had is not okay, right? And you can imagine lots of reasons why that be, why that might be. The court suggests history has something to do with it, um, but they, but they say explicitly, we're going to leave this to lower courts to figure out. We're not going to try to announce a single test to govern all Second Amendment cases going forward. So we're just going to punt this one, basically. And that's nor- that's often how law development works. You know, you leave it to the. That's kind of how common law um, adjudication works. So they get it to the lower courts. And and this is the remarkable thing, I think, about Second Amendment doctrine. In pretty short order, the federal courts of appeal all coalesce around the same basic framework.
1: So, no circuit split.
0: No circuit split on methodology. You have dissents, but no circuit split, which is one of the things that's interesting about Bruin is often the Supreme Court, of course, weighs in when there's a split, but there wasn't one, at least on the question of methodology. It was unanimous across all the federal circuits that had reached this question. We're going to apply what was usually called the two-part framework.
1: Yeah, why don't you walk us through that, Professor?
0: I'd be happy to, and I should say maybe by way of disclaimer that I filed a brief in the Bruin case in support of neither side, defending this framework. So I, I'm a fan. That's my uh, my uh, my personal uh, position on this.
1: So, cards on the table, and I suppose condolences since your 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 argument wasn't taken.
0: Having filed the amicus brief in this case. By the Thomas case, opinion. Uh, defending the methodology and then having worked on the briefing in Heller I guess I'm Owen 2 now in second amendment cases so you know listeners take this with a, with a, with a grain of salt but the the two part framework uh, work like this because part 1 or step 1 the court would consider does this challenge the second amendment challenge in any way reach people or arms or activities that fall within the second amendment And that was a sort of historical question, right? Um, There are some people, like felons and the mentally ill, who just don't qualify under the Second Amendment. Heller said so. There's other weapons, like dangerous and unusual weapons, that just don't count as arms for purposes of the Second Amendment. Again, Heller tells us that. There's just some things that don't trigger Second Amendment scrutiny at all, which, by the way, is how we do most constitutional rights adjudication, right? There's all kinds of things that involve the use of words, but don't count as speech for purposes of the First Amendment, whether it's libel or child pornography, security fraud. So that's step one, right? And a lot of Second Amendment cases got resolved at that step because courts would say, look, Heller tells us felons don't fall within the Second Amendment. And a quarter of Second Amendment challenges after Heller were felons trying to assert their Second Amendment rights. And the lower courts would just say, you don't even get through the threshold. Sorry. You're just, you lose at step one. For the cases that got on through the threshold and to step two, the courts would apply some form of of means end scrutiny, the sort of tiers of scrutiny that are familiar to anybody who's been through con law, and they would usually end up applying what we call intermediate scrutiny. In other words, they would ask, is this law substantially related to an important government interest? And the government interest behind gun regulation is always going to be regarded as important. It's saving lives, preventing people from, you know, from being terrorized. Everybody on all sides of the gun debate agrees there's an important interest here. The question would always come down to tailoring. Does the law work well enough? Is it really directed at at, at that interest?
1: Is this something that needs to be narrowly tailored under this, this prior test?
0: Well, so this is interesting. So the narrow tailoring thing comes from strict scrutiny. We think about the tiers of scrutiny coming in three. There's a rational basis test, super easy to satisfy, not used in Second Amendment cases. Then there's intermediate scrutiny, which is the test that applies, for example, to gender discrimination under the Equal Protection Clause. That's the one I just mentioned. And then there's strict scrutiny, which applies to a certain subset of fundamental constitutional rights. So like some First Amendment cases, some equal protection cases, like race discrimination cases. And in some Second Amendment cases, courts would apply something like strict scrutiny if the law heavily burdened what Heller said was the core of the right, which is possessing a gun in the home for self-defense. So like where courts ended up on this sort of tiers of scrutiny thing depended on how much... the the law interferes with a person's ability to exercise the right that Heller itself enumerated.
1: Going into this, Professor, was this your prediction in some way that the, the meat or the, the controversial thing about this decision wasn't going to be whether the court had a problem with the New York law? You expected them to. You thought the, the issue was going to be whether it would be immediate, intermediate scrutiny or strict scrutiny on this two-part test?
0: I actually think it was, I 100% agree with the first part of that. After oral argument in particular, it was clear that New York's law was going to be struck down. And the only real question was on what basis. And what I was concerned with in filing this brief, along with my colleague at Duke, Daryl Miller, and Eric Rubin of SMU, both of whom are Second Amendment scholars, was to preserve this two-part framework against the alternative, which actually isn't strict scrutiny. I think strict scrutiny is fine in some of these cases. The alternative test is actually something called the test of tech. History and tradition, which would evaluate gun laws based solely on those three things: text, history, and tradition.
1: This is this part is wild. It's to me. wild to me too. Yeah, why don't why don't you break that down? The new test, professor. What is the post bruin test for gun laws?
0: Well, it's it's been hurting my head all week, Joel, so to figure out the answer to that question. Um, I can tell you how it originated, and then maybe make say a little bit about how it might apply going forward, but. The origins of this test typically get tracked to a dissenting opinion on the D.C. Circuit written by then-judge Brett Kavanaugh. And in that opinion, he said that gun laws should be evaluated not based on any of the tiers of scrutiny, but based solely on text history and tradition, and when those run out, based on analogy to text history and tradition. Now, again, no circuit court adopted this test, but it did get votes uh, in dissenting opinions, mostly by conservative judges across the country saying, no, we should do this instead of the the two-part framework. And so, when we filed our brief, we were kind of saying, look, don't go down that road, stay with where you are, which is a combination of historical analysis and scrutiny don't pretend that history can answer all these hard questions. Unfortunately, we were not persuasive and um, are not persuasive enough anyway.
1: Well, I, I don't think you can beat yourself up too much considering that the author of that theory is, is now uh, one of the, the justices on the bench.
0: I think his vote we knew we weren't going to get, and I think it was pretty confident to say that Justice Thomas, Justice Barrett, and Justice Gorsuch, being thoroughgoing originalists, probably also would prefer this form of, what to me really feels like kind of hyper-originalism, I mean, this is history all the way down. It's not The old test had history in it, but it also considered contemporary costs and benefits. What the new test apparently does is say, no consideration of contemporary costs and benefits, only history. And that's the part that I'm most concerned about. I think history absolutely matters. But to kind of use it for everything is is, is where I think we're gonna we're gonna we judges are gonna struggle more even than the scholars do to try to answer some of these hard questions.
1: Gosh, I mean, I I love history. I mean, I wouldn't consider myself any any uh, any expert, but you know, studying history is is a joy. I think it, it 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 makes us wiser, more more thoughtful. But are judges good at analyzing history?
0: Ooh, it's a hard question. I mean, I, I agree with everything you said there at the beginning. I mean, history, not only does it, it absolutely makes us wiser, it enriches, it enriches our understanding, particularly of constitutional law. I think it plays an important disciplining role in how we understand constitutional rights. I just think putting too much weight on it is where the problems come in. And I think they're especially evident when you're talking about something like firearms, which have changed so much since 1791. I mean, our understanding the kinds of firearms that are available, our understanding of who's dangerous with firearms, like these have changed radically in the more than two centuries since the Second Amendment was ratified. And I you know, trying to make analogies, which is what this is really just going to come down to, across those centuries, I think is just going to lead judges, kind of, to follow their own intuitions and just, you know, decide whether you know a modern gun law is or isn't relevantly similar to a law from 1791 is not really guided by law I mean it's it's just kind of I know it when I see it um, and that's I, I think just gonna he's really gonna be hard um, for Second Amendment uh, experts and for judges and lawyers to resolve I should say one thing on history here that is illuminating to your point and sometimes overlooked in the gun debate is that we, as a country, have a very rich tradition of regulating weapons, especially in public places. And if I can just plug it, the Duke Center for Firearms Law, that I'm of which I'm faculty co-director, hosts a free online repository called the Repository of Historical Gun Laws, which has more than 1,600 examples of laws and regulations from out throughout history up until 1934, all across the country, involving lots of different subject matters. So there's lots of history there, the hard part is just, well, how do you extrapolate any useful principles from it to deal with things like automatic weapons today or domestic abusers or daycare centers or airplanes, which just weren't on the minds of the people who ratified the Second Amendment?
1: Or does it give cover to kind of selectively choose the historical facts that buttress your view or that that help your opinion?
0: Uh, This is exactly the concern. Now, I mean, I I should say it on both sides since I've been, you know, I I should present the other side. The other side would say, and this is what the majority says, look, if we look to the contemporary costs and benefits, that's just going to let judges, you know, basically pick and choose which policies they favor, right? It's always going to be bias built into that. And I uh, absolutely understand that objection. I think we can see it in some cases. It's very, very hard to sort of, you know, to make that kind of reasoning not be driven by one's own proclivities. I do, however, think it's way more transparent and it's way more open to public reason than trying to pretend that the framing generation or generations since resolved these questions through laws that just didn't have anything to do with the kinds of gun related harms or the kinds of guns for that matter that we see today. I think both of the, any approach to reasoning is going to have that built into it, that risk. I just think that the supposedly purely historical approach, especially because of its kind of veneer of objectivity, is even worse. So um, neither is perfect, but I think that the new version is going to compound the problem.
1: And I don't know. I mean, should I feel bad for, should I feel some pity for, for justices and for judges that now when they're deciding a case, not only do they have to understand the law and precedent and, you know, researching... Uh, all the cases that are out there, but they also need to do a deep dive into historical analysis.
0: Oh, yes. You should you should, you should, should absolutely send them fruit baskets, send, their, send them coffee. They're going to be up late. I mean, there's a lot of, <laughs> I would say that there's both too much history to read and not enough um, because, you know, there, there's too much because there's not one single historical tradition. Um, that tradition that's out there is regionally variant. I'll give you an example of that, that um, the regulation of concealed carry actually developed largely as a Southern phenomenon. We don't think about the South maybe as having the most stringent gun regulations today, but that's really where the pioneering was on regulating concealed carry because it was thought to be like a dastardly way to carry guns. It was, it was quote unquote unmanly, right? That assassin carries a gun concealed. So, but that was a Southern thing that had to do largely with preventing dueling and, you know, honor-based fights and stuff like that. The, the North had a totally different tradition, which was much more restrictive of public carry as a whole. I could just plug the work here of Saul Cornell and Eric Rubin, who are legal scholars and historians who've written on this. I don't know how a judge is supposed to like pick and choose between those traditions. They're just different.
1: or does the Southern tradition work in uh, one circuit and the northern tradition work in another?
0: I mean, exactly. Like, what if the Fourth Circuit has a totally, well, we have different traditions than the Second Circuit, you know, which covers New York. Um, That would be interesting. Another division, and this is a big one and longstanding, is the division between regulation of guns in cities as opposed to rural areas. Like, if you look back historically, we have a very stringent history of regulating guns in urban areas as compared to rural areas, probably for obvious reasons.
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense.
0: Exactly. And it still makes sense today. And it's still true today, at least in the states that allow cities to regulate guns. But that's not like one thing. It's not like one tradition. So, you know, a Supreme Court justice who's got to resolve a Second Amendment question, like, what do are, what are they pick and choose from? I just think that's going to be an enormous headache. And then to the point about there not being enough history, you know, a lot of the modern gun laws we have didn't exist in any recognizable form in 1791. Even the category of felon, as we know it today, totally different in 1791. In 1791, they didn't prosecute people for domestic abuse in the way that we do, let alone take away their guns, right?
1: I read this, I think, in one of a piece you wrote where, because domestic violence wasn't a crime at all. Is that is that basically? the... You could be
0: convicted of violent crimes, but domestic violence of the form that we, you know, do it, and even federal criminal law just wasn't a thing in 1791 like it is today. But you could pick almost any example. I mean, you know, certainly with classes of weapons, but also areas. You know, like daycare centers, airplanes. I mean, we mentioned the airplane example in our brief, not to be sort of glib and funny, but just to try to like wrestle with what does it really mean um, to designate certain places as gun-free zones, as sensitive places.
1: Yeah, I want to talk to you a bit more about what it means to be a sensitive place. But I guess before we get on to the legacy of Bruin, let's quickly touch on a couple of other aspects. One is, there was an important concurrence uh, that was, I believe, Kavanaugh and Roberts. What, was, what did you take away from that that's worth remembering?
0: It's a really interesting concurrence, and I'm glad you mentioned it, Joel, because it it's important both in what it says and also what it shows the majority not saying. So the the biggest takeaway from the the Kavanaugh concurrence, which is joined by Chief Justice Roberts, and I should say, it took the two of them to make a six justice majority. So I think their views and the concurring opinion are really important.
1: So they collectively are the new Kennedy.
0: Very interestingly, they kind of insert Kennedy into this case in a sort of roundabout way. So in Heller, I've mentioned this twice, but just to say again, there's a paragraph where the court says, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on such longstanding restrictions as felons, mentally ill, dangerous, unusual weapons, et cetera, right? Now, Heller was a 5-4 decision. Kennedy, of course, this is the Kennedy court at that time. Kennedy was necessary to that majority, and we learned later that the addition of that paragraph was the price of Kennedy's vote. That's what it took to get him to join Justice Scalia's majority opinion there. Right. What Justice Kavanaugh and the Chief Justice do in this concurrence is literally cut and paste that paragraph, which also appears in McDonald, the 2010 case which Justice Alito wrote, and put it again in now, Bruin, and say, with this understanding, we join the majority, right? So, on the one hand, you could say, well, that makes this kind of a nothing case. It just says, look, all the old rules still apply. New York fails because it's too stringent, but all the old stuff, the old good-time religion is still good, right? And lower courts, at least one already in the aftermath of Bruin, have pointed to that same language and said, look, The Supreme Court has told us, at least the two people who are necessary to make the majority here, that all the old Heller exceptions still apply, so we're going to keep relying on those. And in some ways, that makes this limited. But, and this is the last thing, but it's important, I think, it makes it striking that Justice Thomas didn't put that language in the majority. Yeah,
1: that was my question for you, Professor. You just mentioned that this was the price that the that alito had to pay to get kennedy on board why wouldn't that have been the case here why wouldn't thomas have needed to do the horse trading and include that paragraph if it was uh, part of the new law
0: and it's doubly i would say it's doubly interesting given that thomas joined the first opinion heller that used this language and he was part of that majority and so he he
1: was this just a gift to thomas since it was his birthday and when the opinion was dropped
0: <laughs> it might have been. He's been writing more, he's written more opinions on guns um, than any other justice. I think it's probably fair to say, at least invoking Second Amendment arguments. So maybe it was. It's certainly been a long play for him. Um, long before Heller, he was calling for the adoption of the individual rights view. And, you know, eventually, you know, he's played the long game in a lot of different ways. And this was maybe eventually the payoff. It's also, of course, the case that the lineup has changed and the court by any measure has become more conservative um, and more originalist than it was even at the time Heller was decided. And so, you know, having Barrett and Gorsuch uh, already kind of along uh, uh, along with him probably made it and Alito probably made it easier to not focus so much maybe on getting Kavanaugh and the chief, but I am surprised if he had added that paragraph and I'm not privy to any of this stuff, but I I have to imagine that maybe then Kavanaugh and the chief don't feel the need to enter the separate concurrence. And then you've got a much more united majority. So I I have to think it was a conscious decision not to reproduce that Heller, that Heller language.
1: Very interesting. And before we, again, before we get to the, the uh, impact, we should we should acknowledge the dissent. What happened in this one of the last opinions drafted by uh, Justice Breyer?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. In a way, it's sort of a callback to a dissent he wrote in Heller. Uh, there were two dissents in the Heller case, one by Justice Stevens, which took a originalist approach to the same evidence that the majority looked at and came to a different conclusion, that namely that the Second Amendment is limited to the organized militia. And then Justice Breyer entered a dissent, also joined by the three other uh, liberal justices at the time, saying, even if we assume there's an individual right to keep and bear arms, this regulation, like a lot of regulations, should be upheld because it satisfies the relevant sort of level of scrutiny, which he describes as sort of balancing, but is really, I think, a kind of means-end scrutiny, like the tears we were talking about earlier. So this approach, uh, sorry, the dissent in the Bruin case kind of does, this takes the same approach um, and says, You know, starts with an invocation of the modern felt necessities of gun harm and and gun regulation, pointing to recent mass shootings, the all-time high of gun deaths calculated by the CDC, most of which I should say are gun suicides.
1: I mean, you study guns, so you you knew that probably before he did, but I was surprised that we were at an all-time gun death high.
0: Yeah, at least since the CDC has been collecting data, which is since 1968. Um, And again, I should emphasize the majority of gun deaths are deaths by suicide, but I think there's very good evidence that those are preventable by gun laws, including, for example, what are usually called red flag laws, but the last two years of data have seen a huge spike in gun homicides. And that's, that seems to be what's really driving the increase in recent years. But yeah, it's about 45,000 deaths um, for 2020, which is the last year for which we have data. And it's also worth saying, those deaths are not evenly distributed across the population. Um, it's mostly men, and with regard to the gun homicides, it's mostly black men or disproportionately black men who make up about 2% of the population and about 38% of gun homicide victims. Um, yeah, with gun suicide, it's flipped. Um, the the deaths are disproportionately concentrated in older white men, especially in rural areas. So this is a lumpy, if you like, kind of complex problem about who's being harmed and who's and who's dying. And that's where Justice Breyer starts, is like, look at what's in front of us, look at what's happening in the world, which is, exactly how you'd expect Justice Breyer to start an opinion. He's a guy who cares a lot about sort of policymaking, he cares a lot about costs and benefits, and so he starts there. But he does also talk about history and criticizes the majority's uh, opinion for slicing and dicing the history in ways he thinks are inappropriate and for not really explaining how we're supposed to draw analogies between historical laws and current ones.
1: A quick break for those listening for MCLE credit. The code for this interview is simple. It's 80,000. So 80000. Again, that's 80000. And now back to the interview. Professor, let's talk a bit about the legacy. Um, What does this case mean, I guess, first off, for the May issue states out there?
0: So I think the first thing the may issue states are going to do is revamp their permit requirements, not do away with them, but revamp them to make them look more like the kinds of uh, shall issue uh, regimes that the Supreme Court specifically blessed. And so I think what they'll do is, um, you know, limit the discretion that licensing officials have, for example, maybe do a better better job enumerating the criterion for getting a permit in the first place. I'm sure they'll be challenged again, uh, and then they'll come to court and say, look, the Supreme Court specifically said what those states were doing is okay and we've adopted elements from their tests and therefore, um, uh, uh, therefore our laws should be upheld, just as the Supreme Court kind of, in advance, blessed, blessed those. So I think that'll be step, step one.
1: When I think about the, the shall issue restrictions, yes, you could imagine a state where it's you apply, we run you through the felony database we run you through a dangerous uh, mental illness database, neither ping, you get a gun. What about on the other end? What types of restrictions do you see states getting? I mean, creativity abounds, but will will states be looking to raise the age? Will states be looking to really increase the the training requirements involved? they
0: might um you know training requirements which is something my colleague Daryl Miller has written a lot about recently are one potentially i think useful innovation here i think my experience at least has been and this was my experience growing up with a gun is that the vast majority of gun owners really prize people's you know reliable and safe handling of guns so the norms in the gun community, at least the one I grew up in, very strong uh, in favor of safety and proficiency. And so, you know, a training requirement that's not overly onerous, like if it's a thousand hours, that's probably, you know, that's essentially a prohibition. But if it's something that's tailored to the actual need to responsibly handle a gun, I think that's probably all to the good. Um, I don't know if that'll fly politically or not, but, you know, we apply, you know, you have to get, you have to do certain number of hours to get a cosmetology license. I would then seem totally out of the, out of the question that you would do it for, for, for carrying, carrying a Gun in
1: public places. New York requires a massage license with multiple hours of training. I don't. I don't see many people injured from a massage.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure that you know people. The and no, no offense to the masseuses or cosmetologists of the world. I mean, the you know gun rights advocates would say, yeah, but those don't involve constitutional rights. We don't do permitting for you know other forms of constitutional rights. And right that's not and there's something to that on the other hand you do have to get a permit for something like a parade you know there's there's marriage license there is the government is involved in various ways in the exercise of constitutional rights but I do think an overly onerous system could run into problems but a responsible and tailored to the harms seems to me um, perfectly plausible and I should say on the the point you mentioned about sort of you know running you through a database there's kind of two ways that could happen one is when you buy the gun and the other is when you get the permit to carry it in public And those could be different. So right now, there is a a federal system of background checks for purchases, which only applies to licensed dealers. So if you buy your gun from someone who's not a licensed dealer at least under federal law, they don't have to check your background. If you go to like a gun store and you buy a gun, then they do check your background. And that's when they would find out, for example, if you've got a record of a felony or you've been adjudicated mentally ill, you could do the same thing for the permit to carry. You know, we don't want anybody who's, you know, say they shouldn't have a gun in the first place, but if they're coming to get a permit, if they're legally not eligible to have a gun, then they legally shouldn't be eligible to carry it. But it could be different, you know, criteria at both those places.
1: Professor, how does Bruin affect cities? Cities have, have long had different, uh, tighter regulations on guns than rural areas, but Bruin doesn't make much of an exception there for, for how populous your area is. Are cities going to have to rethink their gun regulations as well?
0: This is really interesting. In a way, it's it's a it's the dog that didn't bark, in the opinion. Um, at the oral argument, interestingly, it was Justice Thomas, who ended up writing the majority, who raised the thought that, you know, gun, the gun regime in Manhattan doesn't need to look the same as it does in upstate New York, where the two petitioners in this case came from, which, as you say, is perfectly consistent with common sense and with history. I wrote an article back in 2013 called Firearm Localism, where I sort of traced this history and connected it to modern realities. And I think, you know, for the most part, I think people get it. You know, gun homicide is a distinctly urban problem. That is where overwhelmingly, disproportionately, these, these gun homicides are happening. Cities are not places where there is nearly as much opportunity to use guns for recreation or hunting, which until recently were the primary reasons for gun ownership. And people in in urban areas tend to prefer gun regulation way more than people in rural areas do, I think for good reasons. And so my thought in this article, at least, was we can go our own way to some degree on at least some forms of gun regulation. You know, it doesn't work for background checks, maybe you got to do those nationally or not at all. Uh, It might not work for manufacturing requirements. But restrictions on public carry think they don't have to look the same. They shouldn't have to look the same in Manhattan as they do in upstate in upstate New York, or for that matter, in rural Montana. When I was growing up here in North Carolina, people would sometimes have rifles on the backs of their trucks during deer season in the morning. And as you just knew it was deer season, you know, they went hunting before school or whatever. That sends a very different message if they're driving down Fifth Avenue in, in New York today. So I hope that at least that the doctrine will still allow for some uh, urban rural variation there because I think it makes sense and it's historically accurate.
1: I actually grew up in North Carolina as well, and unfortunately was was in school during during the Columbine uh, shooting when when a lot of the, the rules changed on schools. And you know, I, did, I actually had a friend who who came to school. He was planning on going hunting with his dad after school, and he ended up getting suspended uh, b- because he had his his rifle in his truck. So, yeah, that that was a personal example of what you described.
0: It's a perfect, I mean, it's a good example of how, like, gun laws and gun rules respond to felt necessities. I mean, you know, in, in the years since Columbine, we have seen horrifically a just a real increase in concentration in school shootings in particular. And one thing to say about that is they've come to understand that school shootings are although they begin with the discussion of the horrific number of people who've died, which is hundreds since Columbine, of of children who've died in school shootings, it also has to include the now more than 300,000 students who've been in schools where a shooting happened, right? Or who've lost a friend, who've lost a loved one, who've been traumatized by this. It is not just about...
1: That's a lot of harm as well.
0: It's, It's even bigger than that. Now, of course, many gun owners will say Yes, but we have psychic benefits from carrying guns as well. I think that's true. I think people get a sense of safety, and that matters. The law can take that into account. You're much more, you're very unlikely to ever have to use your gun in self defense. Only a tiny proportion of self defense actions involve guns, tiny proportion of guns ever used in self defense, and that's great. We don't want people to have to use guns in self defense. But if people are feeling secure because of gun ownership, that's a benefit. I totally get that. What I'm saying is that we have to take into account the other side of that too, which is the terror intimidation and fear that it can inflict on others like their 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 sense of well-being and sense of safety and the school example to me that just brings that home Um, you know the the meaning of a of a gun near a school has changed and partly that's because of columbine and i think if i went back to my public high school that i went to which is a couple miles from where i'm sitting right now i doubt there's gun racks on the backs of trucks anymore for exactly the reason you say
1: or they may be empty
0: they may be empty. That's right. They're driving the old truck that their you know, uncle or whatever uh, would have been my classmate drove.
1: Let's talk uh, about sensitive areas. And I don't mean any innuendo there. We're talking about areas where, where states can come in and say, look, we have a special concern here. Is there a test? Is there a way to discover or to meet out what a sensitive area is?
0: This is one of the big challenges after Bruin, and, and I should say that that, that phrase that, you, that you're you using, sensitive places, has an origin. It comes from Heller, that same paragraph we keep talking about where the court says, you know, nothing in our opinion casts doubt on prohibitions on guns in sensitive places like schools and government buildings. So, in other words, Heller says, you can declare those gun-free, gun-free zones. You can prohibit guns in schools and in government buildings. Heller doesn't tell us why. Doesn't tell us why those places and not other places. And for most of the years since Heller, it's actually been kind of a sleepy area of Second Amendment doctrine. There hasn't been a ton of litigation here. There's only really two prominent cases that I can think of. One uh, involved the prohibition on guns on the Capitol grounds in D.C. The D.C. Circuit said that's fine; you can prohibit guns in the Capitol grounds, including the adjoining parking lots. And then another case called Bonady, which came from the Tenth Circuit, where the court said you can prohibit guns at the post office and the post office parking lot, even in rural areas. And so but that's that's kind of it. There's not a lot more um, uh, fact development. There's a couple great scholarly articles out there, but but not a whole lot to answer the question of of, well, why? Like, what places are sensitive? And this was an issue at Oral Argument that a bunch of the justices wrestled with. I think it was probably the hardest part of Oral Argument for Paul Clement, who was representing the petitioners here, who is an unbelievably brilliant Supreme Court advocate, but I think was a little bit on his back foot for these questions when the justices asked him, well, like, what about prohibiting guns in on NYU campus? Just not a great example because it's a private school, but, you know, on a school campus or at a football stadium or Times Square on New Year's Eve. And Justice Barrett, Justice Thomas, Justice Kagan, the, Justice Alito, they all seem to be kind of talking about, you know, well, we want there to be prohibitions in those places or for it to be permissible. Maybe not Times Square, but the others. We just don't really know why. Is it because they're especially dangerous? Is it because the government owns some of them? Um, you know.
1: Wait, why did you say maybe not Times Square? Wouldn't that be a, an obvious one?
0: I, so, to me, I think, yes. In fact, I think it is the, it is the modern equivalent of the fairs and markets where guns could be prohibited under medieval weapons law. Um, at least Times Square on New Year's Eve, which is what the…
1: Right, right. When there's hundreds of thousands of people packed together.
0: Drunken and revelry and fights and probably jostling, breaking out. There's a hard question, I think, about how do you administer that law, right, at a place like Times Square, which is different than a school or government building where you can search everybody coming in. But what the court ends up doing in the opinion is not really giving us any more guidance on sensitive places. I mean, it wasn't directly before the court here. They didn't have to answer the question. What Justice Thomas does say is you can prohibit guns in not just schools and government buildings, he adds to that list legislative assemblies, polling places, and courthouses, so some overlap there with government buildings, but basically said those places also okay, and again says, well, it's about what's analogous, you know, relevantly similar. I don't know what that means about, um, you know, suits, suits involving Times Square or football stadiums, and in fact, just a few days after the court's opinion, a lawsuit was filed in D.C. challenging the prohibition on weapons in mass transit. I think we're going to see a lot of litigation on exactly that front. Um, subway in New York.
1: Didn't Thomas kind of muse about carrying a gun on the, on the subway during oral arguments, or, or did I have that wrong?
0: The, Justice Alito um, had uh, painted a sort of a dark vision of a person coming home uh, after a long day's work, at night, through a dangerous neighborhood, and the subway may have made an appearance there, I can't remember. I mean, the tricky thing here, uh, again, to give what I uh, perceive to be the sort of the gun rights view of this is that all the things that make a place like, let's say, Times Square, you know, dangerous and therefore subject to prohibition are exactly the reasons why you'd want a gun there to defend yourself, right? That's the terrible symmetry of the arguments here, right? Like you want to prohibit guns in places where fights may break out. This is so
1: true that the, the public safety argument is on both sides of this issue.
0: So many issues in gun in the gun argument can be flipped back and forth so quickly. And I mean, in uh, in Heller, this came up about you know that was a, a case involving handguns. And as Justice Breyer pointed out in his dissent, all the things that make handguns useful for self defense you know they're easy to they're easy to hold they're easy they you know you can put them wherever it makes them attractive to criminals. You know, like that that's the it, it just works in both directions. The ratchet does. And I think we'll see a lot of the same arguments with sensitive places if a place is dangerous dangerous such that you don't want to have guns there. Well, I want to have a gun there because you just told me it was dangerous. So there's ways out right. of that. And Justice Alito suggested one, which I don't think is a full principle for sensitive places, but one, which is if the government kind of takes over in some very special way, the role of protecting people, like he refers to like magnometer, magnimeter, whatever you call it, like, um,
1: magnetometer,
0: Yeah. yeah, Magnetometry. I missed a syllable in there, but you know, like, you know,
1: the mags as I, I now will forever refer them to after the January 6th hearings.
0: There you go, exactly. I should have had that going in my head. But you yeah, metal detectors, right? <laughs> if the government is taking over especially the role of protecting people, then you can disarm them. But that doesn't get you to declaring Manhattan a sensitive place because the police are there. Like It's got to be more concentrated than that. So I think we're going to have a lot still to kind of figure out about what makes places sensitive. And I should say, I do expect there to be more legislation on this because... If you're a state like New York, and until now, you've had a rule that, you know, in order to carry a gun in public at all, you have to have proper cause, or that kind of limits the number of people who are out there, then you might say, okay, if a person has shown proper cause, they've gone through this licensing, whatever, then fine if they're going to be around in public, even if they're in bars and restaurants where alcohol is served. No big deal. We, We think it's a safe population of people. And that's why, perhaps, in New York right now, it is legal to carry a gun into a bar, right? But if I'm a New York yeah, official...
1: But not many people are, are permitted to exactly. carry a gun, period. You're
0: sort of screening the people in the first place. But if you can't do that, then you might say, okay, now we've got to start picking out some places where, since we've got a bigger population of people, not all of whom have shown proper cause... Then we got to start putting some limits on where they can go, and so I think there there might be a lot more legislation, and then eventually litigation about these locational restrictions.
1: And let's say there's a, a state that that puts in their law that places that serve alcohol are off limits. The analysis would be: Let's go back and look at how in the 1800s how courts treated bringing guns into saloons. Is that would that be the analysis?
0: That's what Paul Clement suggested at Oral Argument. That's what one reading of the majority opinion suggests. I think that would be a nightmare. I just don't think there's any useful lessons that you're gonna get from history about the question if it's pitched that way. I mean, there's lo- this is the tricky thing about these historical tests is they're, going back to what we were saying earlier, it's so manipulable, right? Like, you could phrase the question a different way and say, let's look to history. Did the framing generation prohibit guns in places where they were especially dangerous? you know and maybe they had a different view of what dangerous places were just like they had a different view of what groups were dangerous i mean in the founding era they disarmed native americans people who wouldn't take oaths to support the united states like because they were thought to be dangerous we don't do that anymore thank goodness but they also did not disarm domestic abusers. We do. Our, our, our understanding of what dangerous groups are has changed. And maybe the same is true for places, for place-based restrictions. I mean, there were restrictions back then on carrying guns around on election days and near polling places and near courthouses. And so you could kind of reason from that. But I don't know how you apply that to, you know, a subway challenge, right? Like, the, the, the founding generation had a lot of brilliant people in it, and they were far-seeing, but they didn't foresee that. Uh, There's that, just not going to, it's going to require a level of generality that I think, you know, in the, it's going to depend on how the judge decides to slice the historical record, frankly.
1: Well, I think that means that you'll be busy for the foreseeable future analyzing and, and predicting on this issue.
0: You're probably right. Um, and uh, hopefully my headaches will resolve and I'll have a clear answer on some of these questions, but I think it's going to take years and years and years.
1: Before we let you go, Professor, I want to talk about the new federal gun law, the Safe Safe Communities Act. What does that law put into place and how does that square with Bruin?
0: So before I even get into the what of the bill, I think the when of it is pretty remarkable because this ruin decision dropped on a Thursday morning, and I think a lot of us thought, okay, the Senate is going to use this as a reason to, you know, take this bill, back to reconsider, and, you know, we need to read this 135 page pages of opinions we just got from the Supreme Court. But instead, about 12 hours after the Supreme Court decision, the Senate passed this bill, which was has become now the first major federal gun regulation in 30 years. It all happened in a period of days. The president signed it into law on Saturday, uh, about 48 hours after the Supreme Court decision. So it was a whiplash moment for those of us who, uh, who, who study gun rights and regulation. Now, what the bill does, it's a, it's a wide variety of things. I think all pretty marginal changes to existing law. It doesn't create a lot more sort of federal criminal prohibitions. Most of it is support for things like mental health interventions, crisis interventions, what's sometimes known as community violence interruption, which is essentially like non-carceral approaches to preventing gun violence, like not just relying on police and prosecutors, but like trusted members of the community to try to intervene and, you know, lower, for example, um, disputes uh, in a neighborhood. And all of that, I think, is very promising, especially if it results in fewer people being sent to prison for, you know, for, for minor possession crimes. I think that's all great. It does also, and maybe this is the part that people will know the best, provide some federal financial support for states that have adopted red flag laws, technically extreme risk laws or extreme risk protection orders. And that could be very promising. It's sort of like a federal government and state government working together. It doesn't create a federal red flag law. It just provides support to states that are either adopting or considering adopting um, uh, those kinds of laws. So I don't think that I'm sure portions of it will be challenged under the new uh, Bruin approach. Um, But as I see it, what the federal government did in that bill is is somewhat to the side. And frankly, a lot of it's not even gun regulation. It's just, um, you know, support for violence prevention. Support
1: for mental health. Exactly. If anything was going to be challenged under Bruin, would it be these red flag laws? Is that Analogous to uh, not allowing guns for the mentally ill, or is it something new and unforeseen in history, and thus not constitutional?
0: In in a way, they're absolutely unforeseen, and uh, you know, and the reason for that is that you know, there's about 20 states have these laws now. All but a handful of them have been adopted in the last five years. They're really a post Parkland development, so you can't track the earliest. Even proto-red-flag law in current form was adopted in 1999. So this is not a long historical tradition in the way that Heller and Ruin describe. But again, I think it just depends how you ask the question, Um, and here I'll invoke then Judge Barrett, when she was on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, wrote a dissenting opinion in a case called Cantor, where she said, look, history and common sense are in agreement that dangerous groups can be disarmed, and the framing generation disarmed people they thought to be dangerous. And if you take that to be the historical principle, well then extreme risk laws are just a way of." identifying a group thought to be temporarily dangerous. After all, all the way these laws work is they allow a judge to order the temporary deprivation of firearms from a person who presents an immediate risk of harm to themselves or others. In other words, they present a danger. And so, you know, it's just a different way of asking the same question the framing generation would have asked. They would have had a different answer, but even the most stringent form of originalism doesn't commit us to the same applications as the framers themselves would have done, thank goodness, I think, from the perspective of an originalist or anyone else. So, I, I would argue that red flag laws fall pretty squarely uh, within that tradition. It's just a different method of getting at the same principle that the founding generation, as then Judge Barrett put it, recognized.
1: Well, Professor Bloker, I really appreciate your time. I know you've been incredibly in demand since the, the recent, uh, decision. And, you know, perhaps as, as the case law develops, we can have you back to, to dissect the new changes.
0: I'd really enjoy it, Joel. Thanks so much for the conversation. For more legal explainers and interviews with the Titans of law, visit Talksonlaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview,
1: you can enter your confirmation
0: code at talksonlaw.com/podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks
1: on Law MCLE podcast.